Conference on Visualization of Information. The See on the Go podcast. I'm going to talk today about uh, the power of networks. Uh, and I'm actually going to start with trees, believe it or not. So trees have been really important religious symbols over the ages. Uh, we go, we can see trees way back in time, uh, from ancient Babylon, as you can see here, uh, to, through Buddhism, through Christianity, through uh, Judaism. This is actually uh, the Kabbalah tree, also known as the Jewish tree of life. But most important than just merely uh, religious symbols, uh, trees have been important knowledge uh, classification systems as well. And you can see trees uh, in a variety of ways, mapping the blood ties uh, between people. You can see trees mapping the, the main characters and stories of the Bible. Uh, you can see trees, uh, in a way, mapping the many areas of science known to man uh, through these beautiful illustrations from the Middle Ages, uh, mapping the relationships between the various pieces known to man. Uh, and again, a series of, of striking uh, visualizations, uh, pretty old ones instead. Uh, but trees have been really such a widespread metaphor because it really expressed this human desire for, uh, for symmetry, for order, for simplicity, balance, and unity. Uh, it is, what you actually see on the left side, is one of the oldest trees of knowledge uh, ever devised. It was actually created or devised by Aristotle himself uh, way back in time. And this basically divides all uh, human knowledge into a variety of categories and, and subcategories in this very hierarchical tree-like structure. But what's interesting is also how there is, we are kind of facing a, a, a paradigm shift uh, in a way that trees are no longer able to accommodate uh, a lot of the complexities of the modern world. And on that topic, and then you really see this, this really interesting turning point uh, from trees to networks, networks being uh, the metaphor we are relying more and more, again, to express the, the inherent complexities of our modern times. And, and recently, I actually discovered uh, an amazing article by uh, American scientist Warren Weaver. And Weaver, back in 1948, wrote an article on the topic of organized complexity, where he basically divided uh, modern science into three different stages. The first, in the first stage, covering the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, scientists were primarily concerned about how one specific element uh, influences the other, to what Weaver considers to be problems of simplicity. Moving, of course, forward into the, into the first half of the 20th century, uh, scientists became aware there's not just one or two elements or components uh, going around, there's actually a lot more. But they actually thought during that time that they were behaving quite randomly, quite chaotically even, if you want to call it such, to what Weaver considers to be problems of disorganized complexity. Of course, the third stage, moving to the second half of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, Scientists are not just aware there's a huge number of elements and components in our ecosystems, in our planet, in our universe, but they are only, they're also highly interconnected, highly interrelated and interdependent to what Weaver considers to be this third stage of, of, of human science, which is dealing with problems of organized complexity. And we can see these problems of organized complexity in a variety of ways. We can see them in the ways we try to unravel our ecosystems. So no more we have this uh, simplified predator versus prey diagram, as you can see here, 
Uh, this was actually one of the Darwin's theories uh, how cats are related to, to, uh, to the pollination of bees, which was really interesting uh, as, a, as a topic in itself. But no more, we have this again simplified visions of ecosystems. This map is one of the most striking maps I've ever seen of an ecosystem uh, taken, uh, taken place in the, off the coast of northeastern Canada. It's actually mapping close to 100 species that interact with the codfish. And you really see, again, the inherent complexities of, the, of, of our ecosystems in our planet. Uh, we also see problems of organized complexities in the, in the way we try to decode our own human brain. So while before we thought about the brain as this highly modular and centralized organ that we, you know, where a given area was responsible for a, for a given set of, of actions and behaviors, this was, you know, of course, slightly outdated way of thinking about the brain. The more we know how the human brain works, the more we kind of resemble it almost to a, a, a massive musing symphony played by hundreds and thousands of instruments. This is uh, only 10% of the human cortex. This is a map generated by the Blue, the Blue Brain Project, which is very similar to the genome, Human Genome Project, but it's just trying to map and deconstruct all the intricacies of, of the human brain. And this is mapping, I think, close to 10,000 neurons and 30 million connections between those neurons. And this is, again, a small, a very small percentage of the human brain. And you can really say how this topic of organized complexity is so challenging from a scientific point of view. We can, of course, see these issues of organized complexity also in the ways we try to categorize knowledge. This has been an effort, if you study history, you, you're going to find this recurrent sort of anxiety, human anxiety, is to organize and categorize knowledge in a variety of ways. And this has happened way through the beginning of times, uh, all the way through ancient Greece. This is one of my favorites, uh, uh, sort of uh, old uh, visualizations. This is a map of the French Encyclopedia, the largest at the time, created by Diderot et d'Alabert uh, in 1751. It's actually a map of all the categories uh, and subcategories of, of knowledge depicted within uh, and expressed within the encyclopedia. If you compare that to these are two maps of Wikipedia. And it's really interesting to see how the web and the internet is really changing a lot of those implicit uh, tree structures that we, we have embraced all until, until nowadays. Uh, these two maps, the one on the left is a map of history, and the second one is, is mathematics. And it's basically showing all the ramifications, all the subfields that interact with the main field that you see on the center, uh, hopefully, uh, with a little bit more clarity. But it's really striking to see how, you know, the Wikipedia, again, it's really one of the most striking rhizomatic structures ever created by, by man. And it really expresses our knowledge is really not a tree at all. It's really much more like a network, where you have this dense network of links, of relationships, of connections between all areas of, of knowledge and, and fields of, of thought, or human thought. We can, of course, see the problems of organized complexity in the way we also organize ourselves. So before you had this, and before, and pretty much now, in most, comp in most companies, in most organizations, you have this typical organizational chart that you can see here on the left side. Uh, it's the typical top-down structure uh, where you can drill down all the way from the CEO, the president on the very top, all the way down to the individual workman. Uh, 
But of course, this, even though this is pretty much the standard in most companies, uh, we can also, of course, see a little bit of a paradigm shift in this area as well. And again, the web is being sort of a main pivot, a main sort of driver for that change uh, in, the same, in the same way as you saw with the maps of Wikipedia. Uh, so what you actually see here is two screen grabs of a, of a map of online social collaboration between Perl developers. And Perl is just uh, a, a, it's a fairly famous programming language. And you can see a variety of, of people here collaborating on a diversity of projects and, and um, and, and, and collaborative, collaborative um, assignments. It's really interesting, again, to see this, this highly dense network of collaboration happening on, online in a structure that's not hierarchical by any means. It's very flattened out and very uh, network-like as well. Um, you also, of course, see these, um, these problems of organized complexity in the way we try to order nature itself. And this is, again, an old age aspiration from humankind to understand, yeah, actually Aristotle began, began sort of this pros, process of decoding and categorizing the natural world as we all know. But the one that you actually see on the, on the left side, it was the only illustration in the Origin of Species by, by Darwin himself. This was the very only illustration that he had in the, in the famous, one of the most famous scientific books of all times. But, and what he called, of course, the tree of life. Uh, and he wanted, uh, there was actually excerpts that Darwin was really pushing forward to have this illustration shown in the book because it was critical to his theory to show all the species resembling a tree as it evolves. And on the right side, you have you know, the typical top-down taxonomy of all species. You can find that in a variety of ways. Uh, actually, human is just comparing to the, to the fruit fly, which is always a, an interesting comparison right there. But what's interesting about this notion of a tree of life, um, very much pushed forward by Darwin, uh, prominently by Darwin, is that it's actually changing. So recently, scientists discovered that overlaying this tree of life, there is a dense network of bacteria that really are tying all the species together to what scientists are now calling the web of life. Not the tree of life anymore, it's the web of life. And it's really interesting to, to think about this in a really deep level, because if you think that uh, approximately 90% of the human body is made of bacteria, alien forces to our body, you can really understand the significance of this study, that it's really not about a, a very structured tree-like structure that keeps on evolving, but it's really very much more like a network, the web of life, which the scientists are calling uh, this project. And these, of course, are just you know, a few examples of of you know, a few dozens of projects, and dozens and hundreds of projects that I've been collecting over time in, in a website that some of you might know called visualcomplexity.com. And, and the goal here of collecting all these, these different websites has always been the same, to really to leverage a critical understanding uh, across different visualization methods, across a series of disciplines as diverse as biology, social networks, or the World Wide Web. What you actually see in the bottom is a quote from one of the blogs talking about VC at some point, where it says that in visual complexity, the reader is just as likely to come across a representation of a protein network as it would be to see a map of a subway or a social interaction. And this really explains this diversity of projects that you can actually find within the website. Another way is 
by looking at all the categories exposed in the website. And this, again, it's pretty interesting from, again, from the World Wide Web to biology, transportation networks. I mean, more and more, with a variety of projects that are out there right now, you could easily dedicate yourself to have one website just dedicated to mapping social networks. And you probably would get a few hundred uh, projects. It would be a pretty interesting sort of achievement in its own right. But I truly believe that for us to have a really broad understanding of all visualization methods that are related to networks, you need this holistic approach, this pluralistic approach to really understand the challenges and the solutions that a lot of people are coming in, are coming with in all these disparate fields, uh, apparently disparate, but very common in the end. Uh, so it's really interesting, this pluralistic approach of, of the website itself. It's also what's really interesting for me as well, as you collect such a large number of projects, is that you end up finding interesting patterns within those projects. Uh, and there are various uh, sort of, and it's really interesting to explore a lot of this, again, those patterns and trends within this massive growing uh, data set. One of them is the blogosphere. Uh, and this is something that's you know, fairly close to my heart. It was actually my master thesis project was definitely related to understanding and visualizing uh, how information spreads within the blogosphere. And it's something that you see uh, uh, growing, right? There's a lot of attempts at mapping the blogosphere in a variety of different ways. You know, from the very first one that you see, the small one on the left, is actually a recurring pattern. It's, it's trying to map the US political blogosphere, for example. It's pretty tiny, it's hard to see, but the idea is that they try to represent uh, all the blogs, the political blogs, Democrats and Republicans, to try to understand if out of that online discourse between political blogs, you can actually have some sort of an outcome explaining, well, some sort of a, a, a disclosure or some of sort of an insight into, into the outcome of a particular election, the US elections. So is the online dialogue affecting the elections in the end? So there's a lot of questions, interesting questions generated by a lot of these projects, trying to understand all the intricacies of, of the web and the online discourse as well. But one of the, my favorites uh, uh, mapping the, the blogosphere is what you actually see here, number three. And this is called hyperbolic blogosphere. Uh, it's trying to map one of the most, well, some of the most active uh, areas of the blogosphere itself. It's, it's hard to pinpoint uh, every individual blog, uh, you see a few, I think number one is dailycause.net, a massively popular blog, at least in the US. Uh, number two is uh, boingboing.net, again, another very popular blog. But what was really interesting for, um, uh, for the, um, the, the researcher, for uh, the, the author of this project, was actually number three, which you can see on the top right. And number three was this pretty isolated island from the rest of the blogosphere. And it was pretty curious to understand why was that happening? Why was that sort of segmentation or fragmentation within the web happening? Uh, and it turned out to be those would be primarily LiveJournal users. And I don't know if you guys know LiveJournal, but LiveJournal is, is a blogging tool, similar to WordPress, um, Blogger. But what's really interesting about LiveJournal is that it's primarily used by teenagers. And this, from a social science point of view, is really interesting because teenagers tend to have a lot of interlinkage between them. They create a lot of uh, links between themselves, but they don't actually create a lot of outbound links with the rest of the blogosphere. So you end up having this really tightly close-knit island isolated from the rest of the blogosphere. 
What's really interesting, again, for me, a lot about this project is that it really highlights the benefit of visualization. It doesn't tell you all the answers of the system, but it gives you that hint of insight, right? That hint of insight that would be pretty, pretty striking to be able to, to, to get from just looking at an Excel spreadsheet. Uh, many projects are, are interesting, of course, to explore in this level. Uh, one of them, I mean, most of them is actually, of course, mapping Flickr. Flickr has been a massive database for, uh, for designers, for researchers to really explore uh, in, from a visualization standpoint. Number one is actually pretty striking. It was in the early, early days of, of Flickr, well, the author was actually trying to map uh, the entire social network uh, of Flickr, which I think he gave up after a little bit of time. It was pretty an undertaking, uh, pretty hard to, to, to do. Uh, number three is one of my favorite projects, mapping, mapping Flickr. So tracing the visitor's eyes, this was done in the city of Barcelona, but I actually I think afterwards they did it in, in different uh, cities as well. So what it did here, the authors basically grabbed a bunch of images taken within the city of Barcelona. And they only grabbed two different instances. They grabbed the, the time that the image was taken and the geo-coordinate of that image. And with only those two uh, aspects, th those two uh, little elements, they could actually recreate the path that people made within the city of Barcelona, again, using Flickr. What's really interesting for me, again, here, and this uh, discussion I, I guess we were having last night, is using this sort of you know, parallel transversal thinking uh, and apply it to visualization. So you can imagine how this particular project is important for a mayor of a city, for urban planners, to understand how people are using and navigating through the city. And this is, again, not using probably the most obvious data set. It's using Flickr, which is you know, used by people just sharing images and videos online. Uh, then you have things like mapping literature, which is pretty striking uh, uh, achievement as well. There's a lot of interesting projects here. Uh, visualizing the Bible is probably a really interesting one, I guess, especially in this setting. The number three is, is really mapping the, the, the Amazon recommendation engine, right? So people who bought this book also bought that. And if you select any title, any SBN, any book, you create such a network starting from one single title. And what's interesting here is that of course, we already know that, but just visualizing this in such a way really highlights the fact how you know, our interests are so intertwined. Our, uh, you know, the recommendation engine of Amazon is just a really, really highly dense uh, network of relationships. Uh, and then you have things like net, uh, terrorism. And it's really interesting, terrorism, too, as a, as a sort of a, a topic to analyze from a network visualization point of view. There's actually a, a book called The Spider and the Starfish. I don't know if you guys read it or not, but it's a really interesting metaphor uh, with this, playing with this idea of, of, of terrorism, of, of terrorist cells. And the book, again, it's called The, the Spider and the Starfish. And the, the metaphor is, you know, the spider is the typical hierarchical structure in the sense that if you cut the head of the spider, it dies off. The entire body dies. The starfish, in opposition, is compared to a non-hierarchical structure. So in a non-hierarchical structure, there's no leader per se. There's no central element. There's no brain taking over the whole organization. It's a non-hierarchical structure. And what's interesting about the starfish, again, as a metaphor, is that if you cut the starfish arm, it grows it back. Even if you cut the starfish in elf, it grows it back. It doesn't die at all. So it's really a metaphor also. The starfish and non-hierarchical systems are a metaphor for terrorist cells, right? So there's no 
leader per se in that network. There's no brain guiding everyone within, within that organization. And that's partly the challenge of trying to understand, visualize, map, uh, and decode a lot of those, those terrorist uh, systems uh, because of that. But number three achieved it quite remarkably, I, I have to say, in my opinion. So what they did, this is actually a map of the terrorist cells involved in the Madrid attacks, I think seven years back or eight years back. And what they did is, again, because it's so hard to track a leader uh, uh, in, in any in that terrorist cell, what they did was basically they segmented uh, the, the cells, the terrorist cells, in three different years. So you see the, those vertical layers correspond to different years, right? And then they map how the network was evolving year after year. And on the, the blue arrows that you actually see there is mapping the people that stayed year after year. So even though they cannot get the leader of that organization, they can get the people that are constantly part of that cell. The, so the most influential, they would probably be the most influential, the people that know more about the organization, how it is structured and what's the plan for that particular cell. So it's really interesting use, again, of visualization to really decode the inherent complexities of, of, of terrorism. But what's really also striking for me as, uh, uh, as a designer studying a lot of this phenomenon is how, how networks are really becoming almost a cultural meme in its own right. It's almost to the point of asking ourselves, are we at the verge of a new art movement, which you, know, you could actually call networkism. And it's really interesting, again, uh, as you know, us designers, uh, scientists, researchers, uh, try to map a variety of complex systems, right? They are really, we are in many ways contaminating a lot of artists in the process from traditional fields, most of them, from painting, from, art, uh, from uh, painting and sculpture, for example. And it's really, really becoming almost a cultural meme, uh, feeding a lot of this, this, this people, people's work. So here you actually see an example of that level of influence. Uh, what you see on the, on the left side is a computer-generated map of IP addresses, machines, computers, servers. Uh, and on the right side is transient structures and unstable networks, a beautiful painting by Sharon Malloy of Oil and Canvas. And again, the, the striking comparison is, 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 pretty, is pretty interesting to me. Uh, here, uh, yet another example. On the left side, you have Operation Smile, uh, a, again, a computer-generated uh, social network uh, by Firstborn and Digital Kitchen. And then on the right side, you have Field 4 by Emma McNally. Uh, and again, you can really see sort of the, the, the inspiration where a lot of these artists are drawing their inspiration from. And even further, this is a quote, which I love, uh, by Sharon Malloy, one of the main precursors of this art movement, if you, if you can call it such, uh, where Malloy says that, you know, my quest is to reveal how everything is interconnected, from the atom to the cell to the body and beyond, into, the, into society and the cosmos. There are underlying processes, structures and rhythms that are mirrored all around and permeate reality. What's interesting about this quote is that it, it doesn't, it's almost, doesn't really seem like an artist is, is actually uh, saying these words. It seems like a quote from, from a network scientist, you know, uh, from Albert Barabasi, one of the main sort of precursors of, of network science. It almost feels the motivation of science and art in this particular case is actually the same. And of course, many other projects exist in this area. Uh, you have this one, again, a beautiful transient structures and unstable networks. Uh, by Sharon Malloy. 
uh, beautiful, beautiful paintings, and she has many more. Uh, you have this striking uh, pieces uh, by, you know, reusing graffiti on paper by Emma McNally. Uh, striking, striking uh, compositions and drawings that she makes, and many more exist. Uh, but what's also interesting is that networkism, if again there is such a movement, uh, doesn't really happen only in two dimensions, right? This is a great case of a, a three-dimensional uh, piece, uh, part of this movement of networkism. And I think the title really says it all. It's called Galaxies Forming Along Filaments Like Droplets Along the Strands of a Spider's Web. I think this is really one of my favorite projects dealing with this topic of, of artistic influence uh, through, uh, based on network science. And actually, I've never experienced this project myself uh, personally, but I've heard descriptions about it. And apparently, it basically filled this entire room, of, you know, a room pretty vast, not, not, maybe not as vast as this one, but, but pretty large still. And it created this with elastic ropes, uh, tying all these little sort of islands and sort of webs within the web itself. And what's interesting is that it's very volatile as well. So as you navigate the space, as you bounce a specific cord, the whole network changes, the whole network moves and, and adapts. It's, there is that element of volatility within the network itself, which is, which is again, pretty, pretty striking. Uh, and then you have this beautiful piece, uh, In Silence, by Shiaru Shiota. Great, so she basically fills this, this, this room with this dense, dense, dense web of, of elastic ropes. Again, filling sometimes with objects, as you can see here. She has many variety of pieces that are really, really amazing. It's really the opogee of, of, of networkism in, in many ways. And sometimes, you know, again, she fills these rooms with objects, uh, as you see here, sometimes with, with people inside those rooms. Um, you know, it's really, again, the, the sort of the, the striking element of, of nat networkism to sort of to its maximum goal. Uh, <clears throat> and then, I would like to just you know, end this, as I, I normally tend to like, uh, with a little bit of a teaser, right? Is there such a thing as a universal structure? So you saw a, remarkable, you know, a few remarkable examples of networks uh, and examples that are trying to depict and visualize and map a lot of those networks. What's really interesting to me is this particular comparison. So what you have on the, on the left side is a mouse's neuronal network, which is, at this particular scale, pretty much it Pretty, pretty much similar to our own. And then on the right side, you have the Millennium Simulation. It's the largest and most realistic simulation of the growth of cosmic structure and the formation of galaxies. It was able to recreate the evolutionary histories of approximately 20 million galaxies in 25 terabytes of output. Uh, again, here is the same sort of level of comparison. So again, on the left side is the mouse's neural network at just at a different scale um, from the one you saw before. And again, the Millennium Simulation at the different scale. And again, coincidentally or not, I just find this resemblance of you know, the, the largest scale known to man with the smallest scale known to man. And having that sort of resemblance is really striking at, at many, many different levels. So finally, I think the, the, just a little bit of self-promotion. I think the book is actually outside, if you guys want to have a look at it. But it was, oh, it's there, right there. <laughs> cool. All right. So the book was actually published in, uh, last year, in August 2011, by uh, Princeton Architectural Press. And I think most of the images that you actually saw in the presentation are here in the book, and, and many more, of course. 
available at fine bookstores everywhere. Um, so, well, thank you so much for having me here. It was a great pleasure. So, thanks. The See On The Go podcast.